Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has eight years of law enforcement analysis experience. He spent time with the Indiana Department of Homeland Security, Milwaukee PD, and Fishers PD in Indiana. He is certified with both the IACA and IALEA. He is Charlie Giberti's Analyst of Tomorrow. Please welcome Kyle McFatridge. Kyle, how are we doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Jason. Uh, thank you for being here. So as I mentioned, you're one of Charlie's analysts of tomorrow. And yeah. it was interesting how he described you in that you seem to always have an entourage with you. He said that you had an entourage in Milwaukee and now you have an entourage in Fishers. So I wasn't sure how you took that, <laughs> if that's an embarrassing description of you, but I wanted to give you a chance to react. Yeah, I mean... I think he even invoked the rock in that as well, which which is kind of funny because I joke around with my kids about how how much I look like the rock, which isn't true at all, but they get a kick out of that. So, yeah, I, I don't know about the whole entourage things. I do have some good friends in Milwaukee and good friends here at Fishers. So I, I took it as a compliment. All right. Very good. So let's get into this. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, I actually didn't start in law enforcement right away, but I had some some jobs that definitely had some analytical aspects in nature. The, my educational background is in engineering. So it's funny. I have two kids, Ava and Kate, they're eight, and nine years old. And they've asked me multiple times, you know, hey, daddy, when are you going to be a real policeman? And <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's hard enough for me to explain to an adult what a law enforcement analyst does. So it's even harder with second and third graders. So I, I usually just simplify it for them. You know, I say, I, I work with the police officers by using math and science to help fight crime. And there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at my educational background, you know, courses in physics, calculus, fluid dynamics, statics, things like that, in my engineering background, a lot of it's problem solving, a lot of it's, you know, logical reasoning, things like that. And I think, uh, you know, it carried over, it, it helped prepare me for the analytical profession. So that was my one of my first jobs kind of utilizing some of the analytical skill out of college was uh, with the Indiana Department of Homeland Security, like you said. I was the emergency planning section chief. So, you know, in that role, you get to conduct threat assessments. I was also the planning section chief for our emergency operations center for state activations during disasters. There's a lot of tactical analysis roles in that job as well. Then I was probably about three or four years into that. My wife gets transferred to Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Uh, big change for us. But my first my first gig there was actually with the Milwaukee Health Department. I was an environmental disease control specialist. Again, analytical aspects of that job. We were responsible. Uh, Milwaukee's right on Lake Michigan. There's nice beaches there. A lot of people may not know that, but you ever travel to Milwaukee, the beaches are beautiful. But they would be responsible for putting up these, you know, the, the warning notifications, whether it's safe to swim or not. There's no waves. We don't have wave notifications like some of, some of the states probably do out there, but for bacteria. So they would check for bacteria if it was too high. I'd put notifications. So one of the roles that I had was, you know, doing some analytics on predicting what beach water contamination might be like for certain period, for certain days so we could get those warning signs out. So there was actually a lot of analytics in some of those previous jobs. And those are just a couple that I mentioned, but I always found that that was kind of my wheelhouse. Those were the aspects of the jobs that I really enjoyed doing. And then to be honest, analytics, law enforcement analytics actually runs in my family. My brother is a counter drug strategic analyst for the Haida here. Oh, so okay. he's a, he's a military intelligence warrant officer. He specializes in human. He served a couple tours in the Middle East running human intelligence sources. So as you can imagine, our, our family get togethers are <laughs> chock full of fun analyst talk, right? I mean, but, but uh, honestly, he's, you know, he's my older brother, always looked up to him. So, you know, kind of inspired me and in, in knowing that that career opportunity existed out there. So like everyone that probably got into this profession, you know, I always had a, a level of respect with law enforcement through family and friends and, but answer my daughter's question a little bit more. I always knew I, I didn't really have the the capacity to be an officer. That's a really diff, difficult job. It's very different. I thought my contribution to law enforcement and to support law enforcement was going to, was better served as being, you know, more in the analytical field. So um, while in Milwaukee, 
I wasn't long for the health department. I was there a couple of years, but kind of keeping my eyes and ears open to opportunities out there and happened, you know, got fortunate that this was going on almost 10 years ago at the time that Milwaukee PD decided they want to make a push for, you know, going data driven and started hiring a bunch of analysts. And it, to me, it was, hey, I can, there, here's my chance to combine my skill sets, what I knew was my wheelhouse with a passion of mine. So I got the chance, I got the opportunity to work with the Milwaukee PD. And not only that, I got uh, to start under the guidance of two of the best analysts in the country, John Amberg and Stephanie Sickinger. Stephanie's with the FBI now, but those two really created what's still today an amazing analytical capability in Milwaukee. So I was very fortunate to to have that opportunity to start there. But then that led me back here. My my wife got transferred again. You'll see a theme here, but my wife gets transferred to Indianapolis. And I'm, my wife and I are both born and raised from Indiana. So this was kind of a coming home. I had lived in Indianapolis prior to this. So it, it wasn't as big of a move as going to Milwaukee. We were there for about eight years in Milwaukee before we came back. And when I was here, at that point, it was, this was my profession. I was a law enforcement analyst, right? I, w- I didn't come here thinking, oh man, I need to find a job. Just give me some work. It was, I'm going to be an analyst. That, that's, that's my career. So, you know, after a short amount of time, I, I, was, I found a city of Fishers, which is a suburb of Indianapolis, about 100,000 people. I was looking for an intelligence analyst. And that's a little bit of a new challenge for me. You know, I was a crime analyst in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And, Working in Intel is different. It's a little bit of a different beast. So it was a new challenge for me. But fortunately, I found a, a great department that really wanted analysts. They, they trusted analysts. They want to listen to our ideas, empower us a little bit to build a great Intel unit. That's what they're looking for. And, you know, when I first started in Fishers was about four years ago, it was just me and an intern. I, the previous two analysts before I started had just left. The lieutenant that was there just got promoted. So it was just me and the analysts still left over from that. And right now we've got a lieutenant, a detective assigned to our unit, and four civilian analysts, which is pretty remarkable for a department of about 120 officers. The the quality, the quality of our unit, I mean, it it still kind of amazes me. Our lieutenant detective are two of the smartest officers I've ever got to work with. Our lieutenant just gets it. You know, he's <laughs> he's been at this PD for a long, long time. He knows how to lead unit. He knows to get the best out of our people. And to me, most importantly, he trusts the analysts. He trusts us to to be creative to make you know, to make decisions. Our detective, prior experience in intelligence work, working with JTTF and federal analysts, he truly understands the analytical value to our jobs. And then the analysts that we got working now that's from when I started, I mean, all of them bring something unique to the table. Candace Keenan, she's probably the best tactical analyst I've ever worked with. And I mean, I've worked with a lot of really great ones, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, we should we got to strap her to her chair so she won't actually physically go out and kick down doors herself. She wants to see her work all the way through like that. I mean, that's just the passion that she brings to the job. Marcel Sanchez was that intern I talked about, right? She was an intern when I started. And, you know, shortly after we hired her on full time, she just presented with me in Dallas at ILEA a few weeks ago at the training conference. And not to show my age too much, but she's about 15 years younger than me. <laughs> so I'm always, always amazed at how intelligent and, you know, but what a great analyst she is at this point. Now, for me, I mean, she's well beyond where I was at that point in my career or my age. So, and then we just just hired another one recently. You know, we get building, getting stronger. Sydney Carrillo. I mean, she's equally as intelligent, motivated, and she uh, she's one of those. You know, you're on your interview panel. We as analysts sat on the interview panel, and I will, as a side note, say that when you're hiring an analyst, I implore you to put and put an analyst on your panel. You know, you got a, a department that's hiring an analyst for the first time. You may not have one. Find an analyst in the area. Have them sit in on the interview panel. But Fishers did a good job of that. We we sat on this interview panel with Sydney, and she's one of those that you're interviewing, and then after a while, you feel like you know we kind of need to sell ourselves here. The interview kind of <laughs> yeah, the interview kind of flips. We need to sell her on us. So she's yeah. a great addition to the team. And um, I always so, say that an interview is a two-way street and you should yeah. always think about it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And so Jason, I, I, I literally come to work every day and I'm pretty sure I'm the dumbest guy in the room. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how great this, this unit is, but it's fantastic. I mean, I, what more would you want out of it? I mean, the, the, uh, the being able to leverage all that collective brain power. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of keeping your analysts together, the centralized unit, right? The, opportunities that present themselves when you have analysts working as a unit, working together, especially in intelligence, right? 
especially in intelligence, it's absolutely necessary. So, so honestly, I found a great home here in Fishers, top down from all the way from the chief on down. I think they really appreciate the analytical value. So happy to be here. All right. Very good. A lot to unpack there. So impressed that your entourage includes people that are smarter than you. That's, that's, that's a good play there. <laughs> Certainly can appreciate following your wife. I've followed my wife four or five times as we've zigzagged down the East Coast. Back to your major in studying engineering, what did you go into college wanting to be? I would say an architect. Mm -hmm. So I actually spent about five years working for an architectural firm. Just It was kind of just administrative tasks as I was going through college. I then kind of transitioned a little bit into the engineering role of it. Because just following architecture is a lot more about design, the engineering aspect of it, the mathematics, the the science behind it seemed to start to fascinate me a little more. So I kind of verged into that that arena more. So the, the program itself, I went to the Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, so the Purdue University School of Engineering in Indianapolis. And it actually prepares you for project management is the big overarching goal of it. And amazingly a lot of that transitions into a lot of different jobs the project management can kind of take take form in a lot of different jobs that you can get into and i definitely use those skill sets today but when i got out kind of funny i talked about my passions and everything right Mm -hmm. Uh, none of those were necessarily construction or engineering so i had I, i was one of those that got the degree you know and said you know, how how else can I use this to to do something that I'm really passionate about? And so that's what that's I actually when I ended up at the Indiana Department of Homeland Security, the building commissioner's office falls under the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. So that okay. was my first gig to get in there. So it's an odd transition, but that's how I got. Okay. Now that was the one question I was going to ask. And then kind of the same thing with the, the health gig that you had in Milwaukee to begin with. How did you come across that? Or was that just an, something, as you mentioned, you needed a job. So that's, you're just basically finding the first thing you could find. Yeah. Um, a little bit, but there's, there was a lot of aspects of that job that were related to emergency management. Mm-hmm. And working with the Department of Homeland Security in Indiana, I wrote a, a lot of state emergency plans. So there, there, it was definitely an emergency management role at DHS. So that that job in Milwaukee, with the health department, was kind of filling, you know, that skill set. So all right, that makes makes sense. And then with your time in Milwaukee, you're in a fusion center. Is that correct? Yes and no. Okay. It was we when I first started there it was called the Intelligence Fusion Center, but it was not the federal funded intelligence fusion centers that we're familiar with. Okay. That was the name, but the actual the, the fusion center, the federally funded fusion center was in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So we were uh, we were an Intel Center. They they've since actually changed their name to the Fusion Division. So, so this was created solely under the umbrella of Milwaukee Police Department. Yes, it was a Milwaukee Police Department, Intel Center, yes. Okay. So from what you can gather with other fusion centers, did did it behave similarly? No, we were specifically local crime. We were specifically working on Milwaukee crime. Yeah. So I guess where I'm getting at, it was, was the task similar? Where Was it somewhere someone's calling you up? Can I get more information on so-and-so or some address? And you, the fusion centers, putting people in contact or doing research. Is that the, the uh, main task? No, 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 no. I mean, there, of course, there's some of that, but mm-hmm. no, the vast majority of it was, there was actually a lot of opportunity to kind of problem solve and use some of our, you know, the analytic skill sets and training that we got to come up with ways to solve problems. You know, did a lot of, you know, spatial analysis and trend analysis, things like that. So it's just, what are some examples of projects and tasks that you did while at Milwaukee? Well, actually, I'm going to get into a big one here with one of my batch stories, if you want me to dive right into that. Yeah, let's just do that. So yeah, you have two analyst batch stories. So let's just talk about the first one. And I guess for those that are new to the show, the analyst batch story is the career-defining case or project that an analyst works on. But, so go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, so I've got a couple here. The, the, the first one, the first one is is kind of kind of wild. So my first week on the, it's probably my first week, maybe the second week started. I, I don't recall that specifically. So this is 2014 at Milwaukee PD. 
So this is my first job in law enforcement analysis, right? Mm-hmm. We're about a week, you know, a week into it. And I'm all excited, nervous. You know, you're trying to figure things out. And at the time we hired about eight other analysts. There's a big, a big hiring push. And five of us were assigned to this technical analysis unit that worked out of the Intel Center. So we're always moving around in this big group, right? And I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you call a group of analysts, like a flock of analysts or a gaggle <laughs> of analysts or something like that. We'll call them flock for now. <laughs> all right, flock for now. So we had this detective in our Intel Center, and he was heading to the state lab so again first week. So he offered to take our our flock of analysts, right, to see the see the lab. So the meeting that they were going for, where why he was going to the lab, was a new process they were doing called familial DNA, and it was. It was extremely interesting, right? They had this serial rapist case and you got multiple victims matching an unknown DNA, but it's the same DNA. So the concept behind familial DNA was that we knew this suspect DNA wasn't in the system, right? Because they've already ran it, but was to take it and run it against DNA samples. And if there was a certain number of matching alleles, then you knew that it was a close relative, like a brother, a son, a father. So in this case, there was a hit. So we go to this meeting. And then our flock of analysts, we all, you know, return back to the PD and we continue our training. Well, we happen to be trained in on like an older RMS system. And it was one of those systems that they took all the old paper reports and they scanned them in and dumped them into an online database. So we got to figure out how to search them because it's a nightmare. So at the, you know, so at the, at the time we're learning how to query all the system. I thought, well, I have a name to work with. And sure enough, didn't take too long. I found a pretty great suspect. So another analyst I got hired was Shannon Kale. She's a friend of mine. And I learned pretty quickly. She's also a great analyst. She took up the search with me, right? Both new analysts were like, hey, let's, let's, let's keep digging into this. So we've got multiple databases we're learning. So we're digging up all this information we can, you know, uncovering more substantiation for our possible suspect here. And we ended up finding out you he was likely involved in multiple rapes going back more than 10 years. So one week on the job, mind you, we go to the detective and we're like, hey, I think we got something here. And what was also interesting is that this guy had a prior sexual assault case that he pled not guilty to, and he consensually gave up his DNA. So we had it on file. So the detective says, all right, this, you know, this looks good. Send it in for a comparison and got a match. So he was arrested, charged, found guilty. I mean, not bad for the first week, right? Yeah, I'm, that's uh, that's the best first week I think a analyst has ever had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that's probably the singular most impactful case that I'll have the rest of my time as an analyst, and I got it in my first week. But yeah, it was still pretty cool. Yeah, you think, oh, it can only go up from here, right? <laughs> After that, yeah, first right, week. right. So, I guess when you get the familiar DNA, are you just given a name you don't have any identifiers other than a name i guess i'm a little confused on why you didn't get him exactly locked in once you had the name to then go back well all you get the name is of a well all you get the name is of a relative okay you don't know if it's a a brother an uncle a son i mean so you got the name of somebody that incarcerated that it didn't do it you know they didn't do it it wasn't their DNA, but there's enough alleles in common that you know that it was a family member, a close family member. So then, then the, the the work begins of trying to figure out who that might be. Okay, so in in this case, then it was you had a last name that you were going on, most likely, right? Yeah, yeah, we had that individual's name. So, and I, you know what? I I don't know if they still do this technique. I honestly don't know. We used it a few times and then it just kind of kind of went away. I don't know if there was legal, you know, legally or or what. I it, but I we never really used it much after that or it just went to it maybe it got signed to a different unit, but okay. No, I mean I know well, I don't know about Milwaukee per se, but but we've definitely had some guests on here that have talked about using some of the ancestry databases there oh yeah to identify familiar dna and to get closure on some old really old cases so it's definitely something that's being used throughout the country and so that suspect had been sexually assaulting people for a while correct yeah absolutely yeah i think we I think that I want to say at least four cases, but this was obviously a long time ago, so I'm, I'm not sure that's exact, but it was multiple cases going over 10 years. All right. And then you had another bad story that you wanted to share. Yeah, actually, I spent most of my career in Milwaukee 
working on a, a program called the NAC program. So NAC stands for Networks of Criminals. It's a it's an offender based program. Uh, it was focused on motor vehicle thefts and robberies. And you think of think of hot people policing instead of hot spot policing, right? There's a program I created it starting back in the, in 2015, and it's actually still going on today. Analyst Garrett Knuth is running running that program still today. He was my intern at the time I started creating the program. Nice. So. Yeah. Shortly after I started, I got assigned to the robbery task force there. It was my first assignment, my first real assignment, right? So Milwaukee was going through this dramatic increase in motor vehicle thefts and robberies. It was it was crazy. Essentially, you got these younger suspects stealing vehicles. They're using them to commit street robberies. So that's where your correlation from the two became. But from about 2009 to 2014, so the five years preceding when I started on this, there's about 4,600 vehicle thefts a year. A lot, but you know that was that was the five year average. But in 2015, there were 7,500. Oh, that's uh, so yeah. we're yeah, it, it was it was a huge thing. It was a like a cultural thing. Like it, it became the thing to do in Milwaukee. You stole cars. So robberies, similarly, like I said, that correlation they had about a 20 percent increase over their five year average too. So so I get to sign in this task force to help out, and I'm brand new. Just learned how to use I2 analyst notebook. So I made link charts, right? So. So that's what we do. I was like late summer 2014. We had this task force, you know, I had arrested about eight crews. We got about 35 people. So I threw them up on link charts. I said, you know what, I'm going to throw up their other criminal associates that also, you know, steal cars or commit robberies, you know. So I threw those up there too. And the task force loved it. You know, they pick up a crew and they go, look at your chart here. This person was already on, you know, he or she was already on your chart. And at this point, I'm already thinking, all right, that's great. But that, you know, I, I didn't really feel like I was being helpful. It wasn't predictive or proactive. It was just kind of, you know, I, was, I had them on these charts. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to put all these crews together and all their associates. And then I figured out that of all those eight crews that they just arrested, they were all linked to each other. Like this, we kept calling them crews. This wasn't, these weren't independent crews. This was a network. So now I thought, you know, okay, I'm onto something here, but how can you leverage this? And that's kind of how Knock was born. So I spent the good part of the next year or so working through how I could create like a sustainable system for identifying and then prioritizing and communicating all these actors so we could kind of get out ahead of the problem instead of just reacting to what was going on. And what I ended up with, you know, was starting with criminal history because that's the easy answer. I'm sure everyone listening at some point as an analyst, you got asked to provide a list. Lists are very popular. Give me, you know, give me that list of top burglars. Give me the list of the top car thieves, the top shooters. But there's a lot of complexities that go into getting a list, creating a list, you know, or the people in custody or out of custody. Have we deconflicted them? Uh, who's going to update this list? How often is it going to be updated? Does everyone on the list need to be wanted? Are we going out and arresting them? What are we doing with it? Are there age limits, specific MOs? Is it, you know, anybody that steals anything or is it retail? Thefts, is it you know car thefts? So, but we always, whenever we're doing it, though, we kind of start with criminal history. So that was the first component of my analytical process for to identify it. Not, mm-hmm. and then after that, I realized that you know the department records, those records don't always translate to what officers are seeing on the street. Right? Oftentimes, you'll get just the sloppy crooks that always get caught will end up yeah. being on there. So, what about like social media information? information we get from jail calls or the officers themselves on the ground telling you what they're seeing. So that's, that's all qualitative information, right? That's, so I needed to develop a way to take that qualitative information and to quantify it so we could use it for analytical purposes. And so I had that as my second component. And then finally, the network, this network, we quickly, like I talked about, I was putting them in the link chart and I too, and I quickly had over 500 individuals. There was all kinds of connections. And I remember I was trying to figure out the best way to leverage these links, right? I, I got all these links, we got all these individuals. And then that's when I discovered social network analysis. So I've actually since then been trained to be a certified SNA trainer from the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. And if other departments haven't been using SNA or maybe if you haven't even heard of it, you really should. I've, I've seen actually there's been training offered a lot more recently. Actually, last month at the conference in Dallas, ILEA, LEIU, they were doing SNA training. And essentially what SNA is, it's analytical interpretation of your link chart. We all know what a link chart is. Link charts your visual representation of your data. And, but that's usually it. It's, it's static. Most of the time, it lacks any real analytical value. But you know, enter SNA and through a series of matrix mathematics that's way over my head that's done by a software, you can make judgments on the entities in your network. You can you could possibly tell who's the most influential, right? Who who's maybe a broker of 
information between groups or clusters in your networks uh, or who would have the most impact if I was wanted to disrupt this network, who, who should I target for, for disruption? So for NAC, because the problem was so large scale, we're trying, trying to talk about changing a mindset, a, a, a fad. We wanted to go after the most influential because, you know, we're trying to disrupt this network and we wanted to be able to reach as many of these clusters within this network as possible. So if you really think about what a knock is, what the program was wrapped around, it's really the concept that's no different than if I went up to an officer and I said, you know, who is out here stealing cars? They'd probably say, you know, you know what? I've arrested John, Johnny a bunch of times, so it's him. Or he might say, or he or she might say, you know, that shop owner says he always sees Johnny in stolen cars. Or he might say, Johnny's always hanging out with those kids I arrest all the time for stealing cars. Those are the three components. Those are typically what you'd hear from, from an officer, right? So what we did, criminal history or and what we called intelligence, that qualitative information in our process and social network analysis, what we did is we just formalized that conversation I just had with the officer. We just formalized it into a, a comprehensive evaluation over the entire city. And then we do a comparative analysis based on all those factors for those 500 subjects we're, we're looking at. And that's you know to ensure that we're prioritizing the right individuals. So I spent probably a good three years running the NOC program. And if, if I'm ever known for anything there, my guess is it would be that. Well, it would it would be that or bringing a basketball hoop to the office to shoot hoops during work. So either <laughs> one of those Indiana, things. Indiana, of course. Of course you would bring up hoops. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I find it fascinating, the social network analysis. I just had Shannon off on the show last week, and mm-hmm. we I was just mentioning to her that what, I think one of the deficiencies in law enforcement analysis right now is that there's not enough science in the products that analysts are producing. We have GIS, but there's no significance tests being running there. I hear less and less about nearest neighbor testing going on in law enforcement analysis. And I even mentioned with link charts, it seems like, hey, we use I2 for timelines. We use I2 to display already known links between people, places, and events. I knew of during my time in Cincinnati Police Department that there was this social network analysis that had gone on. And it hasn't taken off as much as I thought it would by now. And so I'm curious to get your take on this topic. One is, do you agree with me that it hasn't taken off as much as it should? And why do you think that is? Yeah, a little bit. Actually, uh, uh, one of the reasons I'll probably get into a little later, but I, I think I would agree with you that it hasn't taken off as much as I thought it would. And I say that from the perspective of understanding how valuable it can be or could be. I'm I'm a big fan, a big proponent of it. I think one of the reasons is is application is a little bit tough to grasp, at, mm-hmm. at least in my opinion. I think there's certain scenarios that it really benefits and works best in. For example, trying to understand organized crime or a drug trafficking organization or gangs. I think there's a lot of value in there when there's an existing network. Trying to apply it outside of existing networks, it becomes a little bit less useful, in my opinion. So I think there's, I'm actually gearing up to this summer, hopefully do a training course for our counter drug analysts in Indiana. And that's one of the, that's one of the aspects I'll probably harp on is picking, you know, picking your battle, picking the right battle to use SNA. But I think there was, well, you know, there still is this big push at training. It's also one of those things and not to get ahead of myself, but the, the day to day for a lot of analysts, I believe consumes a lot of their time and to be able to do things of the scientific nature that our, our role I think is intended for becomes more and more difficult. And SNA takes time. It's it, it it's a commitment. If you're or if you're going to perform, produce a scientific product like a SNA product, then there's some there's there's a lot of time and dedication that has to go into it. And I think that's probably one of the reasons it's slow to get off the ground a little bit. Okay. So then the training that you took specifically, it was out in California. And is that something you met in person? They they flew you out to 
to California? So yeah, a few different trainings, actually. The first was their symposium, which you go out there with some super supervisor in your units. And it's an introduction. And that was my first week in Monterey. And if anybody gets the opportunity, oh, it's beautiful out there. It was it's one of my favorite trainings that I've ever done. The Naval Pulse Graduate School campus is beautiful. So it, it, it's a great opportunity. And then after that, later on, I ended up going back for another week to do the advanced training for SNA. And of course, an opportunity to go back to Monterey, I'm, I'm jumping out of my seat, right? But my work with the NOC program, it, Fortunately, got me that chance to go back out there. And then actually, while I was here in Indianapolis, it was during COVID that the Naval Postgraduate School started running their uh, train the trainers. They wanted to get people out there. To, to your point about not taking off as much, I think they saw that too. Mike Asplin runs that program. Great guy. And you probably saw that too, like, hey, we need more trainers out there. This is, you know, SNA was a concept that was really done for the military. Um, mm-hmm. They would run it on terrorist cells or foreign DTOs. And they said, wow, this, this is great stuff. How do, we, how do we get this into local law enforcement, right? And that is a big task. That's, mm-hmm. that's a lot of departments. So I think Mike sees that and the train the trainers is one of those solutions. So during COVID, it was all online. Unfortunately, I couldn't get back out to Monterey, <laughs> but, but, I did, but it was a great training again. And so hopefully, hopefully there's this force of trainers developing all the time out there that we'll get more opportunities to do this. Yeah. So is the software that you mentioned, is that under the Naval Advisement itself or is that a third-party vendor that supplies the software that you're using? There's actually multiple free software opportunities out there. Aura is the one that they typically uh, train on. That's developed by Carnegie Mellon. I actually, for, for the NOC program in Milwaukee, used I2. A lot of people may not even realize that the I2 has some basic SNA uh, capabilities. When I say a basic, they have about four, what would be, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but uh, centrality measures that they can, that you can run against. However, I2 is not a SNA software. So it, it lacks capability to do a lot of you know, network topography and centralization measurements, which are all uh, things in the weeds, but they, uh, if you're doing some, some basic SNA, which we were for not just to get some centrality measures, then it can work for that. And I think a lot of people are more comfortable using I2 just from experience, but Aura is one of them. Get yeah. So there's, it, there's multiple ones of them out there and they go through them in the training, but when you do the actual training, they'll, they'll train you on Aura. All right. I am still battling with this idea that I think there's almost too much data out there that I think an analyst could spend all of their day just on social media and, you know, working, working leads up on social media alone, let alone all the other different data sources that you have to your disposal. And it's, they can, it's just will be like a fire hydrant to the face kind of thing where if you're not careful, and how do you judge what's important and what's not important? And it really seems like this social network analysis is a way to scientifically go through and help the analysts and detectives make better decisions on their data. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. So what I'll do there, if if you are at all interested as a listener here in this topic of social network analysis, we'll get some contact information from Kyle and along with some additional links will be in the show notes and you can certainly follow up and get more information on the topic. Hi, this is Steve French, and I have a message to you about language. Language is really important when you're doing a job. For instance, it isn't a zucchini, it's a courgette. It isn't a lobby, it's a foyer. It isn't Z, it's Z. Buses go on routes, not routes, and it is never, ever made out of aluminum. Hi, I'm Charlie Giverti. One question that people ask me a lot is how to get respect and buy-in in an agency. And I always tell crime analysts, on day one, the most important thing to do is find the biggest police officer in the department and just knock his ass out in front of everybody. And that way they'll all have more respect for you. What I mean by that is find the people who are your leaders, your informal leaders, your high eigenvalue people, and win them over one at a time. Wow them. Knock them out with what you can do and how you can make their life easier 
and then they'll be the ones who go and get all of the buy-in before you. As you mentioned, you leave Milwaukee to head home to Indiana. And again, it sounds like you followed your wife, but I found it fascinating your words that at this point in time, you are now an analyst, right? There's no other profession that you're looking for now when you come back to Indiana. Your focus is on becoming a law enforcement analyst to continue your career. How long between you knowing you want to come home to Indiana to identifying the job there at Fishers? Yeah, actually, I was, it was about six months. So I left Milwaukee, I think December of 2017 into December and started with Fishers in June of 2018. So I actually, we spent the first three months here living in a hotel. Oh, wow. And <laughs> yeah, a, a lot, <laughs> well, some people hear that and they go, oh, you know, that'd be nice. You know, you don't have to clean. You, you got a pool, breakfast in the morning. It was nice for a couple of days, but you got to keep in mind too, I had what would have been four and a three and a five-year-old at the time. I was just say they're fairly young. So, yes. And so my wife's, my wife's working. So it's me and my three-year-old and five-year-old in, in a small hotel room for three months most <laughs> of the time. So it, it was, it was not glamorous at all, but yeah, we, we survived that. So that's, and, yeah. That's uh, interesting too. Cause my wife and I have always done it where she goes off first. I, I stay behind and figure out how I'm going to get a job wherever she's moved. And it got to the point when, when we were leaving Nashville to Tallahassee, there was, there was years that I was with the kids and they were about the same age as your kids were. So they were like two and five at the time when I was playing a single dad. So I can <laughs> totally appreciate yeah. what you're saying here. Yeah. I mean, we spent, we probably spent a few weeks before we ended up meeting her in Indianapolis, but you know, she was missing the kids and mm -hmm. it was, it was time. I, I really, you know, I was eager to get into the job market too. So I wanted to get up there, get my resumes out and start making as much contacts as I could. So then Fishers comes along, would you say about 120 officers? Is that what you said? Yeah, about 120 officers. And we're just pretty small, but you have quite a number of analysts, which is good. And you mentioned that you're a proponent of centralization. And do you find that centralization will work given a certain size? and maybe even geographic area. Because I know when talking to analysts out on the West Coast, sometimes they're part of an analytical unit that's countywide and their offices are two hours apart. <laughs> so they struggle to be centralized in that format. And also, but in terms of size, it, it also gets to the point where it may be difficult to be centralized if there's so many people or so much crime in one given area. And so do you feel that centralization works because of its size? Not necessarily. I actually, because this was actually something of a, a topic in Milwaukee. So even before Fishers, the, we had, you know, seven or eight districts in Milwaukee. So it, it, geographically, it's broken up into districts. So when I think of in the terms of centralizing your analysts, that doesn't necessarily mean centralizing assignments. You could be physically centralized or physically working in the same area and be assigned to different geographic locations. So there's opportunities where there was always a pull in Milwaukee of this kind of, hey, we want the analysts in our district headquarters, you know, to pull them out of that central area and put them in the district headquarters. And the reason that we advocated against that, and I still to this day will, is for one, analysts aren't all cut from the same cloth. We're, we don't all carry the same skill sets, right? I mean, we, there are, we had analysts that were great with GIS. We had some analysts that didn't know how to use it at all. We have analysts that are great with data analysis, some that would, you know, don't want to touch a, a crystal report or any kind of, any kind of reporting system at all. You, you can't, if you separate those skill sets, you're losing capability, your analytical capability takes a big hit. So keeping those skill sets together allows them to play off of each other. Now that doesn't, again, that doesn't take away from the fact that you could be assigned a geographic area and then pull in those other resources as needed. I just think this, the centralization to me too, also goes a lot into for intelligence units. A lot of the, you know, critical thinking, creative thinking techniques, and those deliberate thinking processes used in intelligence analysis 
that that can't happen with just one person. You need a unit around you to help those other have those other perspectives to kind of balance the biases out of your your information. So I don't know that the size necessarily matters. Now the physical location of assignments and you know two hours apart, like you mentioned. I mean, of course, there's arguments to be made. Mm-hmm. To the contrary, but to me, I think there's a way to do it and to to maintain your full analytic capability as a unit. Okay, interesting. So, and then also you mentioned that you're crime analyst up in Milwaukee, and then come down to Fishers to be an intelligence analyst. So, how did the the tasks differ from one to the other? Well, as a crime analyst, especially you know in Milwaukee, like I said, I I worked on knock. Most of the time, that was where most of my work was done. But there was other things that I would do. And I think a lot of our tasks as a crime analyst, you spend, you know, we're trying to figure out what the problem is. And intelligence analysis, or not intelligence analysis, but intelligence writing, they talk about the what and the so what, right? You're trying to figure out what's going on and why it's happening, why I should care about it. The crime analysis piece is that what? It's a big part of that what? Your your temporal analysis, your spatial analysis, your trend analysis, patterns, social network analysis. I mean, there's different opportunities there to to help you in a scientific manner figure out what is going on. Let's help identify identify the problems. And in intelligence analysis, the tasks are a little a little bit different. There's a lot more of the why. I can I can try to figure out the why through intelligence analysis processes without all the analytical capabilities of a crime analyst, but I'm glad I have. I, I think there's a marriage there that that should be a bigger part of a lot of intelligence units because being able to define the the what is going to drive my so what. I, why is this happening? How is it happening? And why should you care about it? What does this What does this all mean? Being able to uncover the unknowns in my my operating environment for our officers, which is the part, which is intelligence analysis. So I think there's obviously there's, there's always going to be that overlap. It's all law enforcement, but for me, it's the, the, the different techniques that we use to answer these questions. It was the big task difference between crime analysis and intelligence analysis. Now that's not to say every analyst you talk to probably wears multiple hats, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's very little understanding, nor does in most of the cases, doesn't necessarily need to be the understanding of what the difference is. So it's more of a, you know, I still do a lot of crime analysis at Fishers. You know, I, I still do a lot of investigative support at Fishers. And intelligence analysis, that is just our, our primary role, our primary function. So, you know, all analysts, I'm sure, wear multiple hats. But the biggest the biggest was going from that, you know, like I said, going into intelligence analysis was I had to kind of learn how to th- think a little bit differently about how I was solving problems or answering questions as opposed to as a crime analyst. You know, I had this, I felt like I had this bag of, or this toolbox of analytical capabilities. You get the problems, you, you know, try to figure out what's going on. And then intelligence analysis was more, now I've got to go into, you know, different ways of thinking through answers to questions about that information, about what what's going on. So are you producing a lot of written reports as an Intel analyst? Yeah, not as much as I'm driving for. We we actually this has been a pretty big year for our unit, to be honest. We we've gotten out and around our area talking about our unit, what we do, our capabilities and with all of our officers, we've gotten in front of them about what our what our role is in the department, what intelligence actually is, you know, and what we're trying to accomplish. So I feel like we've set the table and now we're working on serving the food. So I don't think we've gotten to the point yet where, where I want to be as a unit of serving the food and everybody's eating it. Where right now we set the table and we're just starting to serve the food. And and the food I'm talking about, obviously, is the, these Intel reports, a lot of the reports we do. I would say a couple, probably one a month or so. I'd like to see us get a little bit a little heavier handed with our Intel reports. To me, in intelligence, your your reports are your bread and butter. I mean, that's all the work you do behind the scenes rarely ever gets seen. Probably true for any law enforcement analyst. It's the product that gets seen. So that's all your work. So I'd like to see us get to the point where we're churning out a lot of Intel reports so we can we can get our, our information, our analytical findings out there a lot better. But we're, we're getting there. I'm good with where we're at. I just get a little little anxious from time to time about making sure we're keep going down the path. I see. Yeah. So when some people will think of intelligence reports, they'll think of threat assessments and maybe yep. strategic planning type reports. Does that description fit what 
with the reports as you guys are, or yours are a little different? Yeah, I think that fits. I mean, I think there's different, like crime analysis, intelligence analysis has different aspects to it. There's tactical, operational, and strategic. We do a strategic annual report every year about, it's a threat assessment for the city of Fishers. And we go over all the threats facing the city of Fishers through the past year. And then we forecast what we think is going to happen next year. Where, where, where are we going to see the crime next year? Where is it going to be coming from? And from an intelligence analysis perspective, we, we don't just get into the data behind it, you know, the trends we're seeing, we get into, you know, what kind of legislation was passed that's going to change things? What kind of things are we doing as a department or some of our policing strategies? Is that going to change things? What's happening in neighboring jurisdictions? Are we going to see spillover from that? What's happening across the country? Are we going to see spillover from that? So it's, that's that strategic annual threat assessment. But then we actually just finished a Intel report on South American theft groups, which is, you know, is, is your more of an operational level of, you know, you know, what are they and why should I care about it? Right. So mm-hmm. we, we get hit. I don't know if you've heard of them before, but you know, this is, this is something that Fishers is and our whole general central Indiana region is, I think is seeing an, an uptick in is the South American groups that come over. They're trained to come over and commit certain types of crimes. So it's high-end residential burglaries. Your thefts at parks right now is a big one for them. They have specific MOs where they steal credit cards. Their their big tack right now is to punch door key locks on Honda vehicles at parks. They will actually take just the credit cards out of the wallet, leave it there. So no one even notices. Go use it for fraudulent purchases. Another one, they're big in pickpockets. They used to be big in Paneras. Now you see more grocery store oriented pickpockets. And these guys are professionals. They're they're foreign nationals with fake IDs. They use rental cars. They stay in places they you know pay with cash. These are the types of threats that an Intel unit is needed to uncover. You know, these these are unknowns in our environment that before just you look at it and go, you know, it's, a, it's another theft. It's another burglary. You know, it's a, 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 these crimes happen. But to really understand the threat, the level threat, then we can start figuring out better ways to attack that threat. So I just completed, hadn't disseminated yet the Intel, Intel bullet or report on uh, South American theft groups. So it's, you know, it's about a you know 12 page report that goes through all the tradecraft they use, the different ways they, they commit their crimes and where we've seen them in, in fishers and where we've seen them around us and what might be coming down the road. So that's kind of the different levels of reports we do. And then we'll also kick out Intel bulletins as well, which isn't your in-depth report. We're not getting so operational with that. It's more of a tactical thing. Most recently, probably about a month ago, we've been subject to a lot of states have these thefts or these crews from Houston, Texas are driving across the country. They'll steal a pickup truck. They'll use these large tow chains. They'll hook it to the ATM and they'll rip it right out of the ground to get the drawers out of it. Uh, we've been hit a few times in Fishers alone. We've been hit around central Indiana. I think Indiana is one of the top five states that gets hits, hit with these. So my detective and I, our Intel detective, we sat down and we, you know, we kind of red teamed it and said, hey, based on everything we know about how these guys operate and what they target, what are the most vulnerable places and fishers, most vulnerable banks and fishers for these guys to hit? And so we red teamed it. We came up with five banks to prioritize. So the next time we started getting wind of them, they so southwest of us runs Evansville's at the southwest corner of Indiana. So when we start hearing rumblings down there, because I'm always monitoring this type of activity, we start hearing rumblings down there or in Indy, the southwest of us, then I think, all right, they're in the area. Uh, we'll push out the bulletin. We'll say, hey, these are the banks we think. And that'll give us that kind of a uh, decision-making advantage to place resources. And funny enough, we actually, this this was about a month ago or so, maybe a little more, but we we got word. I, I think it was, it might've been even FBI Louisville or someone that said, hey, we got them down here. Pushed the bulletin out, said, hey, next three to five days, uh, just be aware these guys are around. This is what they do. These are the banks we think they're most likely to target. And uh, sure enough, a couple of days later, we got hit. It was one of the banks we had on there. And we actually had an officer sitting on that bank who had just left to go back to the department, to, to the headquarters to do some reports. And there, we don't know if they were watching, they saw the officer watching at the time, but for whatever reason, you know, minutes later, that ATM was hit and ripped out. So oh, almost got him there. It was, it was, a, it was a great, it's one of those great stories of, you know, this works, this can work. There's an opportunity here, but we just missed him on that one. Okay. Hmm. That's interesting. So I want to move on now and get your advice for new analysts. But before I get your advice, what you just described there, 
in terms of intelligence writing and the different products. I know I struggled when I was an analyst on writing. And certainly there's a way to write these reports. So what advice would you have to analysts in terms of writing such reports that you described? Yeah, that's actually a good question because it's there's different styles to writing and there are training courses out there for it. So, you know, I took the BITAC course, the basic intelligence threat assessment course DHS puts on. So they go they go into great detail about different writing styles to use in intelligence report writing. But I would say with my educational background, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Technical writing, a couple of the courses I had to take was to how to for engineering reports. So there's there's d- definitely different levels of it. And I think the common theme amongst all of them is to be concise and to be clear. We're not writing stories, right? We're writing reports. Also taking into consideration your audiences. Officers are, are extremely busy, a lot of training, a lot of report writing. So to expect them to be able to read a novel about something is probably not realistic. It doesn't mean you don't need to make it available to them should that should they have the chance to do it. That's why that's kind of why we structured our our Intel reports and Intel bulletins that way is because we wanted the opportunity to have an Intel report with all this information, but to be able to piece some of it out into a bulletin at times that one pager to just give them that information right then when that threat was looming, but still have that other information on the back end. And which could also be used to do briefing, roll call briefings or something of that nature. So I would, I would, I guess that would be my advice for analysts trying to get into that report writing is they don't need every detail in every single product. Think about what you're trying to accomplish specifically for that product. What was your intent of that product? If you feel like you have more to say, there are other types of reports you could put, put out and make available, but always be thinking about, you know, what is the intent of that product? Keep it concise keep it clear. And I think you'll have a lot better success of getting your consumer, your audience to to read the document. Okay, good. And then what additional advice do you have for new analysts? Actually, one of the, well, my big advice, I guess, for new analysts would be to, to control the outcome. And it's something I say quite a bit, but it's, and I'll, I'll explain it. It's, it's a little bit, little bit complicated, but I feel like lately we got a tendency, maybe not just in the analyst profession, but tendency in general to run up against an obstacle. And then you got both sides looking to blame each other for it. And then nothing really ends up moving forward because we're too busy blaming each other for it, right? Mm-hmm. One argument I get a lot or complain I've heard a lot come out of analyst mouths from conferences across the country over the years, or just locally, is I put this information out, but nobody read it or nobody did anything with it, right? I mean... This is this seems to be a, a consistent theme among analysts. You know, it's the officer's fault they didn't read it. But but really, is it the officer's fault? I mean, we're the ones trying to communicate something. So if that communication doesn't go through, then we we got to share that blame. And I would argue that we're kind of most of the blame on this one. It's it's an obstacle. This is an obstacle, and instead of you know accepting it as our reality, we need to find solutions for it. So we're analysts. That's what we do. We we find solutions. I was actually reading. Uh, Reader's Digest last week, and yes, You're I get really showing Digest. your age there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I actually get that magazine mailed to my house, and it's kind of funny. This is—I I was probably getting this, getting a Reader's Digest for a few months, and my wife looks at me. She's like, did, "Did you order Reader's Digest?" I said, "No, I have no idea why I'm getting this." So it turns out my grandma, who's the sweetest woman in the world, she's in her nineties. She got me this subscription for my birthday and she forgot to tell me about it. So I'm getting these Reader's Digest in the mail. So thank you, Grandma. I love you. I'm sure she's never going to listen to this, but I, but I, I'm, I do read them. She, and I was reading it last week and there's a section about, you know, making these small changes to change your life or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, one of the, one of the people in there was like, I switched from regular rice to cauliflower rice and it changed your life. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, I eat cauliflower rice. And it's good on its own merit, but it does not taste like regular rice. <laughs> so, but the other one that I was reading was written from a wife's perspective. She was, she was talking about how difficult life was. Her husband would work all day. He'd come home. He's frustrated and angry. You know, she was with the kids all day and she was tired and frustrated. So he'd get home and then they just fight, right? They had bad days. They take it out on each other and they would just fight. So, you know, to the point of thinking about a divorce. So she decides, you know, when he gets home, from now on, I'm going to smile. 
I'm going to talk about something positive before we get into all these frustrations, right? She says it saved their marriage, changed their whole environment. They're, you know, they're able to talk, have an open conversation, and then they eventually get into the, how crappy their days were, but in a cordial manner. So she took the high road, right? No blaming. She didn't admit it was her fault. You know, just identify the problem and control the outcome. You know, we don't always have to assign blame to solve problems. The no, you know, no one reads my product issue. Some people believe it only matters what the analysis is, right? No one cares what it looks like. You know, you slap it on a piece of paper and send it out. I, I think this is wrong. I thought this for a long time. I think they care. I think even when they say they don't care, they may not realize they care. I mean, no one tells you this, but an analyst in law enforcement, you're a salesman. You sell your products. You sell yourself. You got to sell your unit. You got to sell your profession a lot. And I think, you know, we think about all the hundreds of millions of dollars, companies like Apple or Nike or Amazon, they spend on advertising and marketing and branding with their logos. I mean, there's scientific ways to get people to subconsciously read your advertisements. So they'll spend money on it, right? But we, we seem to brush it off a little bit. But if your audience isn't reading your products, you got to find another way. And you know, when I talked about the NOC program, when I used to present that, I presented it at a couple of conferences and I actually spent some time talking about product development because I always thought it was undervalued. And I talk about the, the menu approach to, to product design. So, you know, everybody's been to a restaurant, right? You get to the restaurant, you're, you're sitting down, you got to open the menu. Sometimes you're distracted, you got friends, you know, you're getting drinks, you know, you kind of glance at the, at the menu. But the next time you're at the restaurant, notice the, the visual cues built into the to a, a restaurant menu, right? There's, there's these highlighted boxes, there's staff choice, you know, they got a little star that says this is the staff's favorite. I, I can guarantee you they do not pull the staff every week to find out what their favorite you know, <laughs> dish on the menu is, and then reprint all the menus to make sure it's accurate, right? There's these what they call them bursts, these little designs around things. They do that because those items have the highest markup value they're going to make the most money on those items. And you've probably never noticed it before. I know this exists in the menus and I still do it. It still draws my eyes and I still go to those items and it, I end up buying them. And it's visual cues. It's subconscious visual cues. There's, there's a science to the way that products are put together. I mean, businesses have figured this out for years. There's no reason we can't adopt that. You know, learn your audience, play, play off of their comforts. We send a new knock bolt out every week. And there's a knockbox, right? It's the person in the box. I designed it after a Wisconsin driver's license. You know, it's formatted and laid out the same way. Why? Because that's what officers are familiar with looking at. They know where all that information is. They can quickly read it. NFL football on CBS. You know, they have these like floating heads with their name and their college and height and weight underneath of it. I stole that. I stole that design and I threw it into a recurring officer safety bolt and we do it Fishers. Why? Because I'm betting most of my department's NFL fans. It's a comfort level. It's mm-hmm. things like that with visual cues that, you know, you can reach a wider audience. People are going to, people are going to look at things differently. You can get their attention differently. I'd actually, in the, uh, when I would do it in the knock presentation about the product development and talk about that menu approach, I'd actually throw up one of the boxes on the screen and I'd let it sit there for about, I don't think it was like 10 seconds. And then I would, I'd make the screen go blank and I'd say, Hey, tell me the five things you saw. And every single time I've done that, they guessed those five things that I wanted them to see. I wanted them to see five specific things. Now that knockbox has a lot more information. So if I'm looking, if I'm glancing at it, if I'm an officer and I'm busy and I get this big document, it's got a bunch of people on it. I'm glancing at it. What are the things I want them to, to get within the you know five to seven seconds? They're going to glance at it. There's that opportunity with visual cues to get them to, gl- to glean onto those things. And at that point, they may say, wait a minute, I want to read a little bit more now because I, that's relevant to me. That's important to me. So there are ways that we could do it. There's, and right now, we're seeing a lot of turnover in PDs, right? We're getting a lot of new, very young officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another way to make me feel old is to bring up new <laughs> officer that looks like they just graduated high school. But they consume information much differently than older officers do. It's not a, it's not a one size fits all. I mean, you got to understand your department. You got to understand your officers. But, but to me, I see that as a real opportunity, especially now that we're starting to see a bunch of younger analysts moving into the profession who are probably better equipped at communicating with the younger officers than I, I am at this point. So, I mean, all, all of this, the, what I'm talking about with the controlling the outcome, all of this is especially relevant when we're talking about the new analysts, right? I saw it in Wisconsin. I'm seeing it here in Indiana. There's this 
you know, we've got this big push to hire analysts and this is great. I've been a part of that push. You hire five, 10 analysts at a time, or maybe you're a department that's never had an analyst and you, you know, you want to get on board. So you hire a new analyst. And I, I don't believe in our profession though, that we've got a ton of veteran analysts just sitting out there looking for jobs. We certainly don't have enough to fill the current demand. So what we get is a lot of young, straight out of college hired, right? They're, they're green, fresh analysts, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I've, I've already mentioned the quality and intelligence of Marcella that, that I work with in Fishers. I say the same for Garrick Knuth, who went from an intern to running the NOT program in a short time, right? The, the future in law enforcement analytics is bright, in my opinion, right, with these young ones. But when you combine this influx of new young analysts with what is, to me, a, a, a unique aspect of our profession being our typical command structures. I think we got a real obstacle moving forward here. I think you even t- touched a little, uh, a little bit on this earlier, but what I mean by the command structure for analysts at PDs is PDs are run and supervised by sworn officers. Sworn officers, they do a good job and they get promoted. And this is all good. This is a good thing, right? But when civilian analysts get hired on, they are stuck into these command structures full of officers who probably know next to nothing about law enforcement analysis, nor, nor should they. I'm not saying they should, and I'm not criticizing. I'm just making the observation. So we have a bunch of new analysts who haven't done the job before being put into a structure of sworn officers. Um, and I know there's some departments out there that, that have civilian management levels, uh, equivalent rankings of lieutenants. And I think that's fantastic, by the way. But most, I think most of the departments are the typical command structure is officers that may not have a whole lot of experience or maybe any experience at all dealing with analysts. So what do they do, right? So we end up getting assigned typical officer tasks, you know, investigative tasks, patrol tasks, because that's what they know. And, it, and it's a need in departments too. I'm not saying it's not a need, but I believe the true value of law enforcement analysis or analyst is in that problem solving, that deep examination of problems to help better understand our crime problems, right? To help clarify or forecast threats that are going on. And, you know, we can use those techniques like temporal analysis and trend analysis and spatial analysis and intelligence analysis. That's our value. That's our profession. You know, don't bring me that task. Bring me a problem you're trying to solve, a question you're trying to answer. And I don't believe our profession was intended to just be researchers looking stuff up. Uh, you know, we were, I don't think we were intended to serve as like this call center that fulfills requests. You know, hey, give me a BMV photo, give me this TLO report, or find me an address, find me a vehicle, you know, ID this social media page. These are, I mean, these are all important investigative tasks. They're needs in a department. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying analysts shouldn't do them. I'm, what I'm saying is don't do just that, right? I, I don't want someone to say, oh, I was listening to this podcast and they told me not to do any of those tasks. So that's, <laughs> that, is, that is not what I'm saying. Those tasks are, are still important. There are ways to do those tasks within the confines of your analytical work. Those can help drive some of your analytical work. So if if you have an analyst, I mean, use them the way they're trained and educated to be used, right? Let them be creative and innovative. I think we've gotten a little bit complacent with that role at PDs to where we're just essentially looking stuff up all day. And this is an especially difficult obstacle for new analysts to overcome, right? They don't know any better. And then they have a supervisory structure around supervisory structure around them that likely doesn't know any better either. Either So, I mean, that's actually the point of what I was trying to present in Dallas last month at ILEA. So Marcella and I called it a structure for effective intelligence analysis and local law enforcement, kind of a word jumble there. But, mm-hmm. you know, we went into you know, great detail about what Intel is and how our unit was in, is structured to do Intel work. So the idea behind it wasn't Hey, everybody, look, this is how you're supposed to do it. This is the right way to do it. What I was trying to get to was I wanted to invoke that thought process about the work that analysts were doing. You know, think about the work you're doing. And if your unit was even set up in a way to allow you to fully use your analytical skills. I mean, I, I am a full believer in the value of intelligence analysis and crime analysis at PDs. But we have to actually do that work for it to, to work to show the benefits. Yeah. You know, and actually I should mention when I first came to Indianapolis, before I started at Fisher's, you know, and I was, jo- I was job hunting, I was in communication with Christopher Bruce. I don't recall why we were in communication, but he told me he was in Indianapolis to teach a course out at our state's law enforcement academy. So he asked, you know, hey, would you be willing to come and speak for a couple of hours on the NAC program? I think he was familiar with it from other conferences. And of course I said, yeah, that, that'd be great. So, so the class he was teaching, I think it was being run by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. And it was how to set up an analytical capability at a PD. The target audience was law enforcement supervisors. And I mean, I thought, this is a great idea, right? He had 
you had an officer supervisors coming in that had experience working with analysts coming and teach. And, you know, I wish I could have stayed for the whole thing. But if you recall, I was unemployed at the time living in a hotel room with two small children. So getting out of the, getting out for more than a couple hours at the time was really tough. But yeah, just leaving by the like pool, we, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They'd have, they probably wouldn't even know I was gone. But, but yeah, I feel like I feel like we need more of that right? We need, we need more of that type of getting out there and educating. So, you know, the, the issue that I brought up, you know, getting products read or not feeling like your skills as an analyst are being used. I think these are, these are obstacles that I believe are on the analysts to control the outcome. Educate your department, educate your supervisors, get involved in conducting in-service trainings, training at the academies, show up at roll calls, do a training video. I mean, there's different ways. Show them what law enforcement analysts are capable of. You know, control that outcome. That is great advice. There's a lot there. And you mentioned Christopher Bruce and wanting you to talk about the NOT program. And I just wanted to mention that you were the 2017 recipient of the IACA Innovation and Crime Analysis Award for your efforts there. That's the Steve Gottlieb and Alpha Group Award that's given every year at the association's conference. So congratulations on that recognition. Thank you. All right. So our last segment to the show is Words of the World. And this is where you can promote any idea that you wish, Kyle. What are your words to the world? Well, my words to the world are happy hour. And I know that's a very profound, profound words to the world, but not, I'm not promoting drinking, although I'm a big crappier than myself. But I feel like if you ask any of my former or current coworkers about me or or what I do, they, they'd probably say, oh yeah, he's the guy that organizes the happy hours. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I, I talked about centralizing units and the, the, the teamwork environment of analytical units. So analytical units, especially the intelligence units are, are only as good as that team. And that's not a cliche to me. That's, that's the truth. Our processes, our critical thinking techniques, creative thinking techniques, they only really work in a collective group environment. So Friday happy hours are an opportunity to strengthen that aspect of your analytical process. I, I know that sounds odd to say, but you go to get a, a drink after work outside the office. People are more relaxed. Most of the time are, you know, People are different outside the office. It's an opportunity to step away for a moment, you know, what it, from what it otherwise can be a stressful job. So having that level of comfort outside the office to talk freely, get to know each other, I think that carries over back into the workplace, workplace to really keep communication flowing. And you get to know people. You don't always have to talk about work. I made a lot of friends I still have today through happy hour. And uh, so my uh, words to the world are happy hour. And that, that may be the best advice I've ever given. So here, here. All right. Well, very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Kyle. Thank you so much. And you be safe. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.